Well, good evening, folks. Um, very warm welcome. Just let me outline uh, the, the format of this evening. Uh, we'll begin in a moment with a short uh, film clip, and then I'm going to talk for a little bit. And then we've got an opportunity for some refreshments. And if you'd like to, insofar as it's possible in such a crowd to engage in question discussion about uh, the subject, then there's two ways of being able to do that. Uh, around the building, there are some little pieces of paper like this and some pens. Uh, they're sort of in the pillars and on the tables. And if you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, uh, please write it down, pop it on this piece of paper, and there's a little box just here on my right, your left, and you can put it there during refreshments. Or if you'd like, uh, we've got an opportunity um, for those who'd like to maybe ask a question from the floor, and we've got a microphone that we'll uh, take around just so that everybody can hear. I guess most of our lives are marked by joy, sometimes, but always in the end, sorrow and sadness. Maybe the truth is that we take laughter for granted, and yet actually tears leave us with some of the deepest, the most profound, the most troubling questions. Now, life can bring much happiness in family and with friends, but in the end, for all of us, death leaves you with a very real sense that this is not the way the world was supposed to be. You think, what, what can you do to explore such a hugely difficult question in, in just under an hour? Truth is, probably not very much. But actually, the question of suffering and sadness is one that haunts all of our lives. So it seems worth at least trying to make a start on one Friday evening in September. There's no question that there is, as a subject, I think nothing that is more difficult. It is hugely difficult intellectually. The question of, of suffering and evil is a question that has exercised the minds of some of the greatest people in history. But in my experience, it's not so much the difficulties intellectually that people feel challenged by, important though those are. It's the personal questions. It's less the question, why suffering? Much more in my experience of people, the question of why my suffering? I want us to begin with a, a short film clip, uh, technology permitting. Uh, it's a very famous uh, clip, perhaps a surprising clip. Uh, it's one of the animated Pixar movies, which you may have seen as a film called Up. It's a very famous scene from it. If you know the story, it's the story of Carl and Ellie. Uh, they're school friends who play together, plan together, fall in love together. Two young adventurers with a wanderlust, school kids who plan to see the world to visit Paradise Falls just as soon as, as they are old enough, just as soon as they have grown up. So have a look at the screen. Truth is that joy will become sorrow. Laughter will become tears. And it leaves for all of us the most difficult questions. Sense that the world is not the way it ought to be. 
In the autumn of 1991, Jerry Sitzer, who's an American academic, was returning from a day trip with his family. They'd only been driving for 10 minutes when they were involved in a head-on collision with another car, a drunk driver traveling at over 80 miles an hour. As Sitzer remembers that fateful day, he writes this. I remember those first moments after the accident had happened as if everything was happening in slow motion. They are frozen into my memory with a terrible vividness. After recovering my breath, I turned around to survey the damage. The scene was chaotic. I remember the terror, the look of terror on the faces of my children and the feeling of horror that swept over me when I saw the unconscious and broken bodies of my wife, Linda, my four-year-old daughter, Diana Jane, and my mother. I remember taking pulses, doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying and calm the living. I remember the panic that struck my soul as I watched Linda, my mother, and Diana Jane all die before my eyes. I remember the pandemonium that followed, and I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never recover. You think, how do you make sense of that? Well, how do you make sense of an earthquake in Mexico? Or a hurricane in the US? Or the floods in Bangladesh? Or what if humanity's seemingly endless capacity to inflict suffering on other people through violence and, and torture and abuse? Or what of all the stories that fill this room? Broken bodies, troubled minds, lives lost, families shattered, tears shed. Truth is, if you live long enough and you love deep enough, suffering will come. And with it, the questions that seem, as Sitzer puts it, to plunge you into darkness from which you feel you may never recover. Now, the question we're going to try and at least begin to explore this evening is, in the midst of so much suffering and sorrow, where on earth is God? After all, if God is, is truly there, how can he allow so much suffering to take place? Surely, the argument goes, if God is perfectly loving, he must wish to abolish all evil and suffering. And if he is, as Christians say, all-powerful, then surely he is able to abolish evil and suffering. Given that there is so much evil and suffering in the world, what are we to conclude? That God wants to stop evil and suffering, but that he is unable that he is perhaps loving, but surely powerless? Or maybe worse, is God able to stop evil and suffering and yet unwilling? For he, if he is all-powerful, then does that not leave us with the conclusion that he must also be vindictive? 
I mean, that is the problem of, of suffering that is classically presented to Christians to which we will try and explore some of that this evening. But before we do so, it is important to recognize that the problem of making sense of, of suffering and, and sorrow and evil doesn't go away if you take God out of the, quest, out of the equation. There's a chapter in, uh, character in Ron Curry's novel, God is Dead, that expresses the problem perfectly. He says, I think that's the hardest thing about God being dead. Before, when bad things happened, you could always shake your fist at the sky and say something nasty under your breath, and you kind of knew that God understood. Now things go sour, and there is no one to take the blame. This uh, painting is probably one of the most iconic and famous paintings of the 20th century. It's one of Edvard Munch's paintings, The Scream or The Scream of Nature. In fact, back in 2012, this version of, I think, um, Munch painted four, this version sold at Sotheby's for $120 million. You think, why is it that this image so engages people? Why do they connect with it? Perhaps because we want an answer to suffering and evil, but all we have is a silent and indifferent universe. As my A-level biology teacher once put it, life is an expression of carbon chemistry. Evil and suffering, nothing more than random genetics. Or as the atheist Sam Harris put it, suffering is just mother nature caught in the act of throwing clay. Or perhaps more bleakly still, certainly famously, Richard Dawkins, writing in River Out of Eden, said this, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And Dawkins stands on the shoulders of scientists before him. People like Francis Crick, the award-winning scientist who was involved in the discovery of the double DNA helix. Crick said this, you, your joys and sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. And you think, if, if, if all that is true, if you, your, your joys and your sorrows are nothing but chemicals plus time plus chance, then you think, then what is there left to do but scream? Yet actually, most people don't really believe that suffering and sorrow are just carbon chemistry. Tears flow for all of us in the hope that there might be someone to dry them. It's why Coldplay's song, Fix It, connects with so many people. And the tears come streaming down your face when you lose something that you can't replace, when you love someone but it goes to waste. Could it be worse? 
Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones and I will try to fix you. But the truth is, all of us know that there are so many situations that seem beyond our ability to fix. I think a friend of mine, who Simon, who I was at theological college with, diagnosed a number of years ago with a young family with an inoperable brain tumor. Remarkably, he survived much longer than the doctors expected, but in these last few months, it's become clear that he's approaching the end of his life. And so his eldest daughter brought her wedding earlier so that her father could stand at the front of church with her and give her away and walk down the aisle. Like Edward Munch, Francis Bacon is another hugely influential but very troubling artist. This is one of Bacon's self-portraits. Bacon's paintings, if you know them, are profoundly disturbing. He he renders images of human bodies that are are distorted, screaming, animal-like. The question is, why? What or who does he think human beings are? I suspect if you were to ask him the question why, he might just as well say, well, why not? For as he put it, man now realizes that he is an accident, that he is a completely futile being, that he has to play out the game without reason. You say without God, for Dawkins, for Crick, for Bacon, life is an accident. It's a game to be played out without reason. And the questions we ask about suffering are as meaningless as the answers that we might proffer. And whatever questions we ask in the midst of suffering, truth is we ask them to a silent and indifferent universe. See, however difficult the questions are for Christianity when it comes to suffering and sadness, and the questions are difficult, We cannot really pretend that they are any easier if you take God out of the equation, can we? The questions are real and deep and troubling. And yet we all ask questions. We still ask questions expecting there to be answers, hoping that there might be someone who can answer. I wonder what you make of this painting by Van Gogh painted near to the end of his life uh, while he was recovering in the asylum in Saint-Rémé. I wonder what you see. Age, frailty, grief, despair. What is interesting is the English title that Van Gogh gave to his painting, At Eternity's Gate. Think, did he really think that death was not the end, only the beginning? Did he really imagine that suffering and grief and despair might not have the last word? Van Gogh's relationship with Christianity was sometimes as troubled as his own mind, but even in his deepest moments of sorrow and pain, he seemed to believe that human beings were more than just carbon chemistry. 
There is, he wrote in one of his letters, something in our humanness that is noble. Something great which cannot be destined for the worms. The fact is, the poorest little woodcutter or peasant on the hearth can have moments of emotion and inspiration that give him a feeling of an eternal home. Of course, the question is whether such emotion is grounded in reality or founded in self-delusion. Can I really believe that God is present in this world when he so often seems absent? Can I really trust that there might be an eternal home where there are no more tears? When there is so much sorrow and sadness in this one? You know, the Bible actually has a great deal to say about suffering. Both the suffering that we inflict, which the Bible says we are responsible for and accountable to God for, and the fact is that much human suffering is self-inflicted. The suffering we inflict in our families, in our communities, in our nations. The Bible has much to say about the suffering that we inflict. It also has much to say about the suffering that we endure. Sometimes unjust, undeserved, innocent suffering. The Bible wrestles with the difficulty of pain and and the apparent randomness of suffering. In many ways, the Bible is a no-punches-pulled description of what it feels like to live in this beautiful but broken world. You read it, and here there are honest accounts of, of greed, and jealousy and injustice of exploitation, lies, corruption, murder, rape, incest, even these things sometimes amongst those people who profess belief in God. And often in the midst of it all, there are the bewildered cries of men and women who are trying to make sense of suffering and sorrow. See, there are answers in the Bible about suffering. Answers about the why of suffering. Answers about the end of suffering. Not perhaps all the answers we want, but the Bible seems to insist that they are all the answers we need. Why? Because the fullest answer that the Bible gives to the question of suffering isn't so much an argument It is a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the flesh, blood, and tears of God in human history, God himself living with us in our suffering, God himself dying for us through his suffering. Not that anyone is pretending that that makes it all easy. It really doesn't. But if God stepped into human history in the person of Jesus Christ, the beginning of an answer to the difficult question of suffering and sadness is not so much a why, it is a who. Who was Jesus? And does he, as he claimed, does he show us a God we can trust even when there are more questions than answers? The uh, contemporary 
artist Mark Wallinger produced what I think was one of the most striking statues to occupy the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. It's not a terribly good picture of it. A life-sized statue of Jesus Christ, hands tied behind his back, a crown of golden barbed wire on his head. Perched at the very edge of a stone pedestal, it's dwarfed by all the surrounding oversized symbols of pomp and power. Nelson's column towers over the tiny figure of Christ and massive statues of royal rule and military might fill the three neighboring plinths. It's entitled Eke Homo. Behold the man. Pilate's mocking announcement to the crowd at Jesus' trial after they demand the release of a criminal Barabbas in the place of death, the death of Jesus who is innocent. See, Jesus was, according to the Bible, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. His whole adult life, he was immersed immersed in the lives of the broken and the battered and the wounded and the lost. He experienced personal suffering, the likes of which we can scarcely imagine. To be abandoned by all your friends to be considered insane by your family, the victim of injustice, abuse, torture, and in the end, the most barbaric of executions imaginable. So we can never actually say of the Christian God that he doesn't understand our suffering or that he is indifferent to our pain. Truth is, he was God with us in the midst of the the most terrible evil and suffering and sorrow. In the wake of the carnage of the First World War, the poet Edward Shillito put it well in his famous poem, Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. And yet even the profoundest empathy and encouragement is meager gruel if God can only be with us in our suffering and can do nothing to end it. But the Bible insists that Jesus is not only God himself with us in our suffering, he is God himself for us through his suffering. One final painting which is sadly even more difficult to see on the screen is Rembrandt's Elevation of the Cross. Rembrandt, I think, is the most fascinating of painters. Incredibly gifted and terribly flawed. I suspect few, if any of us here, feel that we can identify with his genius. But many of us, myself included, would feel that we can identify with his flaws. Uh, If his paintings were marked by great beauty, his personal life was often marred by terrible ugliness. If his work brought great joy, and it did, his actions often resulted in terrible sorrow, not least to his family, to his wife, to his lovers. 
He was spectacularly successful and wealthy in his lifetime. But he died penniless, even selling his wife's own grave to pay the bills. And yet I think he understood. I think that he understood that there was only one place that the wounds he caused could be healed. That the life he'd lost could be found. That the sins he committed could be forgiven. So here in the elevation of the cross, Rembrandt paints himself. The man with the beret in the middle. He paints himself at the foot of the cross, lifting the cross in the air. For he sees that he is the man whose sin has caused so much sorrow. He is the man whose sin nailed Jesus to the cross. It's a visual echo of some of the most famous words in the whole of the Bible. That Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. You see, the, the fullest answer that the Bible gives to the question of suffering isn't so much an argument, it is a person. The person of Jesus Christ, the flesh, blood, and tears of God in human history. God himself living with us in our suffering. God himself dying for us through his suffering. Think what what difference, what difference might that make when you are living in a world with so much suffering and sorrow and loss? Ali was a friend of mine when we were students. Actually, we knew her sister, twin sister, Sue, much better, but we'd been on holiday with Ali. She was married to Chris, had two young children, Kieran and Asher. A number of years back, one mid-September, Ali was told that she had stomach cancer. Confirmed within a week that it was an advanced stage cancer in the stomach, the liver, and the lymph, and that it was not possible to operate due to the spread. Chris, her husband, wrote this, needless to say, we are all still reeling and finding the right words, or indeed any words at all seems hard. But Ali has tried. She wrote, I said to a friend last week, I don't know whether I want this never to have happened. Life just became more focused, more precious, more real. Believe me when I say it is more of everything. I feel like I want to wear turquoise and red every day, that putting on makeup is worth it, that every conversation needs to be honest and lengthy and savoured. I want to do more singing and more swimming and more charity shop shopping that Kieran is worth every single full-on face-to-face, face-to-tummy cuddle. And there will always be dishwashers to load, calls to make, clothes to fold. That Wednesdays were made for champagne. I want to dance with Asher and not get bored before she does. I want to fill my house with people I love. 
who will all meet each other and in some mysterious way discover that this truly evil, evil works for good for those who love God. Making sense of suffering? Questions don't go away if you remove God from the equation. The Bible's answer is less an argument and more a person. God himself living with us in our suffering. God himself dying for us through his suffering. The flesh, blood, and tears of Jesus Christ.